Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I'm joined again by Professor John Marini to continue our series on the Great Westerns and on American Masters. We have already covered four of the John Ford Westerns, Stagecoach, My Darling Clementine, The Searchers, and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. We have also started the series on Sam Peckinpah with The Wild Bunch, and we are going to continue today with Ride the High Country. Ride the High Country was his first western, it came out in 1962, and before that he had directed a short lived 13 episode series, The Westerner, starring Brian Keith, which we highly recommend, and we will talk about that as well today. Ride the High Country has a high theme, the replacement of honor politics in the persons of Joel McRae and Randolph Scott, who play former marshals Steve Judd and Gil Westrom, by commercial politics. The plot of the movie has these two men go up to coarse gold in the Sierra Nevada to take a shipment of gold from a find there back to the little town of Hornitos in Central California. The action takes place in the town of Hornitos in a little farm on the way to the mountains and then in the savage camp of coarse gold. Along the way the two old men get a young man to help them and then find themselves in care of a young woman who wants to travel along with them to coarse gold because she thinks she will marry somebody there and thus escape the farm life that she has gotten tired of. But Joel McRae, Steve Judd and Randolph Scott, Gil Westrom, find themselves at odds over the purpose of their trip. Joel McRae wants to do the job right take the money back to the ungrateful bankers who don't care about the fact that he risked his life to get it done. Whereas Randolph Scott wants to steal the money as what is simply owed to men like him and as just punishment for an ungrateful world. The action takes place at the turn of the 20th century and sets up Sam Peckinpah's career and the agony of knowing that nobility is passing from the world. Now on to the conversation. Good morning, sir. Morning, how are you? I am doing fine. I was just watching again the opening of Ride the High Country. Oh yeah. Try to get a better sense of the town with the various modern attractions and distractions there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a good opening. I mean, one of the themes in that film, of course, is the old and the new, and that means the old men against the young men, too. And there's a, always a tension. And I mean, that film, everything in Peck and Paw subsequently, I think, is pretty much in that film as well. The way it comes to be understood 10 years later, roughly, in The Wild Bunch is very different. Mm-hmm. But I went back and watched the uh, Westerner, the TV series. Yeah, I've seen a few episodes on your recommendation. It's pretty uh, good and quite unique, far more morally serious than all the famous Western shows of the era. Yeah, when you figure that that was 1960 when he made those, mm-hmm. I think the very first episode, because there were 13 yeah. episodes of the uh, Westerner, but there was a pilot that was on Zane Grey Theater broadcast before, so there were 14 episodes of that theme. Turns out in Peckinpah's life, he has 14 movies subsequently. <laughs> But I think that first episode called Jeff, there he reveals very clearly the whole of what the problem was for him. And particularly, 
when you look at the Brian Keith character, Dave Blassen game, mm-hmm. goes into this hellhole, really, of a bar. Just remember that scene? You have yep. an Indian bartender. We have a drunk played by Warren Oates. Yep, that's right. And you go into this, and this is a childhood friend of his who's innocent in his own mind. And when he gets there, of course, he finds that she's living in a hellhole and finds subsequently, of course, that she doesn't even have the will to leave. But what is most telling to me where Peckinpah lays out the dilemma that is the dilemma not only of Peckinpah, but one could say of almost every religious person and every Christian. And that was when he goes into the town, you see the beginning of what that town looks like in the bar scenes before. But as he writes in, there's an old lady. Yeah. Yeah, this woman. And she asked him some very simple questions. She said, would you like to read about the good life and the road to everlasting peace? I mean, this is the great dilemma of all human beings in some ways. Uh And she has a pamphlet, you know, made, she said, by the Brotherhood. And he doesn't really want it. But but he's, yeah, and then he gives her some money. First, she says, there's no charge for salvation. And then she says, when he gives her so much, I can't take so much. And there's another lesson that he shows there. Don't you know prudence is one of the Lord's virtues? (laughs) She's telling him that. Yeah. And on the way out, she reappears. She says, have you found salvation, brother? And he shrugs his shoulder and he says, no, have you? And she says, yes, I have. And I think in that you really see uh, that's his dilemma because he's convinced that many of the people he knew had found salvation. Those people, his father, his mother, I mean, probably one of the most influential books ever written in the English language worldwide was Pilgrim's Progress. Yep. It came out in 16, what, 78. Yes. And it's translated over the next several hundred years into 200 languages. And what's it about? The very question that Christian himself asked, what must I do to be saved? Yeah. The whole question of salvation, however understood, is a question, of course, that Peck and Paw is most concerned with in his movies. You know, one of his characters who was in The Westerner and also in Ride the High Country was R.G. Armstrong. You know, the actor that played the father of Elsa. Mm -hmm. He was in a lot of movies that Peckinpah made. They hit it off right away. But you could see why they hit it off. Because R.G. Armstrong came from a family in Alabama, deeply and seriously religious. And his mother wanted him to be a preacher. Of course, R.G. didn't go that route. But you could see that he was like Peckinpah. There was always something powerful and deep about what was there in what his parents had. And it always bothered him that he didn't satisfy his mother. But one of the famous scenes Peckinpah uses him for, you remember he's the deputy that's going to hang Billy the Kid in Billy the Kid, but he's forcing him to take salvation before. You remember that scene? Yeah. He's really crazy. I mean, he begins to be portrayed as a kind of crazy person. But you can see that he had the same kind of problem the same dilemma, let's put it that way. But I think what Peckinpah is trying to deal with in Ride the High Country is a similar thing. All the themes are there. You know, law and order, the way in which the virtues come to be preserved and how it is hard to keep those virtues alive when times change. And so he typically has two characters that are conflicted in the way in which they live. And, of course, in this one, it's very clear, Stephen Judd and Gill the Randall Scott character. 
who, you know, the circumstances has caught up with him and he sees that there's no respect for the way of life that they once had. But you know, what was interesting, there's a lot of accidents in the movie that were very beneficial, I think, to the final result. First of all, it was written by a guy, N.B. Stone, who gets the credit. But he was a friend of the guy who was asked to do it, a guy named Roberts. And he said, I have a friend that wrote this thing. It turned out that H.B. Roberts, of course, was an alcoholic and the script was old. So it had to be redone, and Roberts and then Peckinpah himself spent three or four weeks doing it. There's a couple of things in the movie, I think, that Peckinpah changed that really made it a completely different kind of drama. The first thing was, and the first acting change, was Stephen Judd was originally to be played by Randall Scott and Gill by Joel McRae. And when they read it, both of them realized that it should go the other way. And, of course, Peckinpah agreed. The way they got top billing was just, I think they were in a restaurant in L.A., they flipped a coin, and Scott got top billing. But I think the key was at the end of the film, the Stone Roberts script has Gill dying. Mm-hmm. And Peckinpah realizes, of course, that it has to be the other way around because, for one, if you want both salvation and redemption, which is very clear at the end of that film, that both of those things are possible. When you look at the end of Ride the High Country and then you look at the end of The Wild Bunch, those are two endings that are the same in many ways, but completely different in terms of what the options, what the possibilities are. And so at the end of Ride the High Country, in having Stephen Judd die, of course, it makes it possible also for Gil to redeem himself to be on the right path, to carry out what it is he knew that Stephen Judd would do. And at the end, of course, Stephen Judd's last lines, he said, I knew you would do it. He said, you just forgot it for a while. In other words, that way of life was still possible. I think by the end of the decade, you notice even the way Pike Bishop dies. He dies, and they all die with honor and nobly. But they're not even killed nobly. I mean, when you look at the first shot and the last shot, I mean, the gunshot. The first shot that takes Pike down is a woman that he refused to shoot. And the last shot is a kid. Yeah. He's killed by a woman and a child. I mean, what a way to die. The pessimism that you see by the end of that decade in Peckinpah worked itself out in his own life. I mean, he got ever more sucked into that life of drugs and alcohol. And he never could find his way out. Yeah. But I think the script is really good on Ride the High Country. It's probably one of the best scripts that Peck and Paw did. And if you look at the actual script, uh, you can see how much of it is still shaped by the religious education that he had and the understanding of the law, the understanding of the things that his father found to be important. His father told him he should read Shakespeare. And, of course, he read Shakespeare, Peck and Paw, in college and ultimately spent a lot of time reading Shakespeare. But also, some of his friends said that he had pretty much memorized Aristotle's poetics. He knew it by heart. So he prepared himself. And as he himself said, what you see on the screen, that's who I am. What he did and how his soul, his tortured soul, revealed itself was right up there. It was right up there almost from the beginning, as you can see, from the Westerner. But what moderated him, what made him less nihilistic was the times were not so bad. And he saw the continuity between the old and the possibilities of his own time 
But I think by the end of the 70s, he thought that world was gone too. The world even of his youth. I mean, when he talks about his youth and what he admired and how he lived, it's very clear that what animates him and how he understood himself was in those things he experienced in his childhood. He said his earliest memories of being strapped into a saddle when he was two years old <laughs> or a ride into the high country, as he put it. He said the whole family, the Peckinpahs and the churches, had been wandering in that country since moving out from the Midwest in the middle of the 19th century. He said he was taught to be independent by his father, and this is a quote from him. He said, his father, that all the animals on his land were his to do what he liked with. I was 20 years old before I knew there was such a thing as a hunting season or a game warden, and I was 30 before I began paying any attention to it. <laughs> He said, not realizing the frontier was closing right when he was young, he rode and fished and hunted all over that country. He said, we thought we'd always be a part of it. Those were interviews in 1972. I think the war changed Peck and Paul. I mean, he spent that time in China after, toward the end of the war and after. But no, his view and his conflict with his mother was really over the land. He respected her beliefs, but what he really held against her was when she sold the ranch that her the grandfather had promised to him and his brother, Denny. And he says about what it was like after the war. He said, it's mostly gone now. Fresno's like a little L.A. today, and the country around it is chopped up with new roads and resort facilities and overrun with all those shit-ass tourists and campers. My brother Denny and I were the last of it. A lot of the old timers dated back to when the place had been the domain of hunters and trappers, Indians, gold miners, all the drifters and the hustlers. I did like that period in American life, and I liked the, the period I grew up in, the 30s. It was a different America. We hadn't run out of ground. <laughs> yep, and I, that is exactly it. Yeah, so, and, you know, you can see why his fascination with westerns would be what it was had he been born you know in ford's time lived that older america i don't know if his westerns would have been different in a way an artist does soak up and reflect his own time and of course as rg armstrong said about peck and paul much later he said peck and paul was absolutely confident and certain of the morality of the parents that came before of their nobility their honor he said he spent his whole life looking for that in his own time, and he couldn't find it. Certainly not going to find it in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you could see that all of those things that still animated American public life, I mean, that's the real difference. Public life, if you looked at the Westerns, which you may have done, but you probably, if you didn't live in that period, wouldn't have known how truly influential uh, Westerns were in the early days of television. They were absolutely dominant on television throughout the 50s and probably into the middle 60s. Yeah. And you couldn't watch TV on any network in any week and not find the Westerns really dominated all the programming. Now, I think a lot of that was due to Ford's influence in the films in the 40s and 50s. And when television came, it was natural to, in a way, capitalize on that. And, of course, Wagon Master became Wagon Train. So many of the themes that Ford explored in the movies were re-examined. Another very good Western series that came out in 1960, 
also a short one, it was only, I think, 13 weeks, was a one called Tate. And that was written by a guy named Harry Julian Fink. He was the guy that wrote the script for Major Dundee. Okay, the, Char the Heston movie. Yeah, the Heston movie that Peckinpah directed and was kicked off of. But Harry Julian Fink, uh, Tate is a gunfighter whose arm is crippled in the Civil War. And so he makes his livelihood in the West going around as a gunfighter. And that one was pretty good, too. And some of those actors in those early Westerns were people like James Coburn and all the ones that Peckinpah eventually picked up. James Drury, even Steve McQueen was in the uh, early Westerns. Yeah. And what's his name? Uh, L.Q. Jones, who, again, was one of the other <laughs> guys Peckinpah used in a lot of his movies. Very thoughtful guys in many ways. He said much later, if you look carefully at the Western, it's basically a morality play. It's simple, not simplistic. The good guys are here and the bad guys are there. You can see who they are. The hero does things for himself, doesn't rely on anyone else to do it, and you know he'll take care of it. He will bend the law a little bit, but not his morals. And our societies have moved away from that. The Western spoke of morals, it spoke of fiber, it spoke of the way of living that's kind of changed in our society. Yeah, this but anyway. recalls uh, Rousseau's first discourse where he says ancient politicians talked incessantly of virtue, our politicians yeah. talk of money and commerce. Yeah, right. And right, of course yeah. this is the beginning of Ride the High Country. You're right, it's an yeah, sure. unusually good script with an unusually good setting. You yeah. see Peckinpah's concerns that honor, although it is noble, is not truly protected either by human things or by a divine providence. And he makes that point in a very funny but also in a poignant way in the beginning. After shots of the mountains, they're supposed to be the Sierra Nevadas. Yeah. But, of course, part of the movie actually just had to be shot in California because... Yeah, they had a snowstorm exactly. up there. Yeah. And after that, we see Joel McRae, Steve Judd, riding into town to a parade. There are yeah. American flags, there are people lining the streets, shops are closed, everybody's excited, there are ribbons. People are waving frantically at him, and McRae thinks... They're throwing him a parade somehow. He knows he's come to yeah. a big job, and maybe people heard about it. Yeah, yeah. And soon he is treated like an interloper and berated for being an old man. Yeah. And well, he must have had some renown as a lawman, because when he's at the farm there with the Newtson, with the father, when he gives his name, he said, I've heard that name. So... He thought, you know, he had a reputation, he had a new job, but you notice in the script itself, he talks about his own view of this gave him a chance for self-respect that he had lost after that way of life had changed. I mean, when you had, in a sense, bureaucrats like that policeman <laughs> yeah. uh, in charge of law and order, you don't have a need for a guy like Stephen Judd or Gil Westrom. Yep, and so, so he's quickly disabused of whatever hopes he may have entertained. And this theme is established, therefore, from the beginning, that honor is not honored in the cities of America. Not even in the West is it the case anymore that honor counts for something. And this clearly weighs heavily on the man. 
you're right that some of the older people know his reputation, including the banker who hired him, of course. Yeah, yeah. But not the young people. No, no. It's oh, what they, It's what, the future, not the past, and the reputations what are they know, forgotten. What they know about people like Stephen Judd are through people like Gil Westrom, who's a phony. Yep. He's in the carnivals. When you look at the way he's made up in his outfit, he looks like Buffalo Bill Let's say the merging of reality and legend probably occurs first with Buffalo Bill because he's still alive. And some of the earliest film of Thomas Edison were films of the Wild West show. Yep. Which were clearly about them. And then the exploits of Buffalo Bill get publicized in the pulp literature of the day. And, And so you have in the 19th century, probably beginning with James Fenimore Cooper, the Pioneers and The Last of the Mohicans. And that's in the 1820s when those novels are written. But they're all novels about the frontier, really. Yep, what, it's what the people first form do. of the Western, of America's national yeah. myth. Yeah, and in some ways, of course, isn't that the dilemma of all foundings? Of moving from a place that is inhospitable in many ways, the challenge, of course, of taking a wilderness and turning it into a garden. In a yes. way, you already see that in, in Liberty Valley. Remember yes. in, in Shinbone, I mean, the frontier is always, in a way, about the coming together of the wilderness and civilization. Frederick Jackson Turner had a nice phrase for it. I think the edge of the wave. Do you remember? It's the same phenomenon of the wilderness. And then, you know, even books like Mark Twain's Roughing It. You know, he was out here, right in my country, uh, Genius City, up at Lake Tahoe, and writing about the West in an early period. I mean, we're talking during the Civil War, he was writing this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the frontier, and then I think the backdrop of almost all Westerns, I mean, not not the early Westerns of Fenimore Cooper. In the East, of course, you had similar problems with the Indians. Yeah. And the early expansion, you know, in Fenimore Cooper's time, the West was like Ohio yes. <laughs> and Western Pennsylvania. But in the Westerns after the Civil War, that's where you get the great expanse of the land that becomes part of the beauty and the mystery of the West, which Ford certainly took advantage of. Yeah. And it's hard for young people to believe how remote those places were, even when I was a kid. There were no interstate highways in America that you could get from coast to coast. If you traveled west and you went out into the deserts and that, you had to be very cautious. The west, even in the 1940s and 50s, was really wild if you got out of the big cities. So the backdrop to the western, and I think you can see it in almost every western series on television, was the Civil War. There were Confederate westerns like Johnny Yuma. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. He was a rebel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the famous introduction to that is sung by Johnny Cash as it moves along. And that civil war and then the movement to the West and the way in which it, the West is established. But you, have, you cannot disconnect the Western and the virtues that were required to tame the West from the virtues that were required in all of human civilization. I mean, the kind of virtues of, of self-preservation the kind of things that you needed in terms of loyalty, honor, to establish community. I think one of the ways that the Westerns in television established this dilemma early on was one of the great themes of the Western, loneliness and the quest for home, family, community. Those are the eternal topics of nearly every kind of art form in an earlier period. 
because it was not possible in a way to get along without some kind of community. Yet there was always that desire to wander and to seek. And so if you look at the Westerns, the early television Westerns, the kinds that played on community were Westerns like Gunsmoke, uh -huh. where you had a little community right on the edge of civilization. What kept that television show going for 20 years was the community. You had Doc, you had Kitty, you had Chester, and whatever the equivalents were over 20 years, and you had Matt. But then you had all these loners that were out looking to find a community, to be a part of a community, to help a community. Westerns like Have Gun Will Travel. Yep. Have you ever read that one? Nope, I saw some or, of I mean, have you ever seen yeah. some of them? Yeah, those were quite good, too, because he is very literate. He lives in San Francisco, and, and he's well... Yeah, Paladin, the Richard Boone character. Yeah, he's a West Point graduate, settled in San Francisco after the war, and hiring his services out. It's an interesting show. But you'll notice about those Westerns, in fact, Have Gun, Will Travel was noted for it. In almost every Western, he always used some quotations from classical literature, ancient thinkers. He'd quote Aristotle, he'd quote Shakespeare, poets. But he was the cultivated, civilized, sophisticated man, a civil and military man. He had been to West Point and he understood so many things. But those were the themes. Tate, he's a loner. All these others are all looking for this same thing. It's a form of finding some kind of human salvation. But I think the 20th century with technology makes it possible for people to be without people and not be alone. That would not have been possible before. Yep. If you were without people, you were alone. And that's almost an intolerable way to live. Yeah, and in Ride the High Country, you see these three types of community. First is the modern city that's completely without honor and dedicated to commerce yeah. and leisure. They also have yeah. exotic things for their amusement, like the camel races and yeah, the belly sure. dancing. And some yeah. wife comes and picks up her husband from the show. She tuts them. And, and yeah. so there are these kinds of distractions. But then there's the banker and his son, vice president, yeah. who yeah, right. says the days of the 49ers are over. The day right. of the steady businessman has come. Right, they've come. There's no more risk-taking, or at any rate, you hire out your risks to some people who might get killed, but it's yeah. all in the service of eliminating risk and danger from life. But then there's, of course, the camp, which is a land of savagery. That is human nature in its untamed aspects. There is violence there. Families can live there like savages, that is to say, without any law, without any restraint, mm -hmm. and with communism of women. One of the brothers in the camp wants to marry the Knudsen girl, and she's going to go there to run away from her father, but his idea of marriage is that she will be a sexual slave to all his brothers. Mm -hmm. This yeah. horrifies her because she's a civilized person, but in this camp, you still see that the evil in human nature tied up with yeah. the fact that there is no legal limit and no legal power to enforce any law, all of this is still there. Somehow it has resurfaced again because they found gold again and all that crazy freedom has started all over again. However, temporarily, you're told it's not a motherhood, yeah. but it makes money and therefore creates again this possibility of wilderness. Yeah. These are the two extremes of community in the story. And in between is the well, Knudsen family home, which is incredibly old-fashioned, 
where the patriarchal authority is growing weak and it is not growing any more reasonable for growing weak and there you have an idea of sacred law and yeah. an insistence against civilization on things like female chastity yeah and, uh, well you can the, young to the old and of course that community collapses and it also becomes the battleground at the same time in a symbolic sense there is something about that sacred order which is worth defending the yeah. pater familias there is somewhat mad and the family situation <laughs> is simply untenable and the girl runs away and of course what red-blooded american would do otherwise yeah. but there is a reason why this place halfway between civilization and savagery is a battleground and why there these men are tested yeah Both uh, you can and see Randall scott have to make a stand there and have to decide what they're about and yeah. of course, that's connected with Joel McRae's famous phrase in the movie that was more or less the Sam Peckinpah family creed. I want to enter my house justified. Yeah. You can see in the first visit when they come through and stop at the Knudsen family in the biblical debate between Stephen Judd and Joshua Knudsen. Now, you have to remember, Knudsen is living with the fact that his wife was unfaithful to him. She was a whore, apparently, or he thought of her as a whore. You notice he'd go out to her grave. That's where he was. in the. But that's completely in the background. And again, it's the failure of people to be able to live up to the things that they make vows on behalf of. Now, one of the famous lines in the movie that I think could have been uttered by Peckinpah himself, and that's when Elsa, after Stephen Judd has been betrayed, by Gil, and he realizes again the complexity of virtue. She says, my father says there's only right and wrong, good and evil, nothing in between. It isn't that simple, is it? And Judge says, no, it isn't. But then he says, it should be, but it isn't. That was the dilemma. Why isn't it? It should be. That was the when people know what the truth and what the good is. Why is it that they can't live up to it? Why is it that they aren't shaped by it? In a way, it's, I don't know if you ever saw that old Anthony Quinn movie, uh, Barabbas. It's one of those epic biblical ones that came out probably in the 50s, you know. Yeah. And it's not a great movie, but one of the great lines in it is when Barabbas, he's railing against God. What he is basically saying, he says to God, why can't you make yourself clear? <laughs> I mean, it's as if if we really knew and if you could tell us this and we believed it, then there would be no great problem. But that's the problem of freedom and morality is that people make choices. They have to make choices. And those choices are shaped by many things, including their passion and their interests and not only the moral thing. But you were talking about the coarse gold community. It's very clear that the Hammonds... They're a clan that is still understood in terms of the relationships of the family. But it's very clear that that clan, too, whatever its religious beliefs were, those religious beliefs don't have any authority in the way they actually live. When they're singing after the wedding, James Drew and the clan, they start singing a famous hymn. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. That's about salvation. That was about when people actually believed and thought. And now, clearly, it was a dead ritual for them. They knew the song, but they didn't have any sense of what the meaning was. Now, whether their parents did or their grandparents, that, of course, you, we don't have any knowledge of. But in a way, it's the same problem for that family as it is for the Knutson family. 
where it's more real and it shapes their lives in more real ways and they haven't been degraded by the social practices of sharing wives or things like that. But still, it's very difficult to sustain whatever was once understood as a good, even for them. Remember, at the end, the Hammonds die somewhat honorably, right? Because remember, they could have just shot those guys up. And remember, at the end in the gunfight, when they're challenged, one of the brothers, I think it was Billy, James Drury character, says, don't you know anything about family honor or something? Do you remember that line? So yeah, I think all of these things are... What is so clear, and I think you really have to look at the script carefully to see, in the beginning, when they stopped at the farm there, there you see a great gap between the young and the old, both in terms of the way they used to live, what their expectations were, and what the young even know about the past. One of the great lines in there is by Joshua Knudsen, the father. He says, levity in the young is like unto a dry gourd with the seeds rattling around. He's talking about when Heck Longstreet's complaining about having to pay a dollar for an egg after Newton says the Lord's bounty is not for sale, so he gives him one egg, but the rest are a buck apiece, and he's talking about that. But Gil Westrom, who turns out to be in his own way a kind of philosopher, he says, don't worry, boy, the Lord's bounty may not be for sale, but the devil's is if you can pay the price. And there he's talking about the woman, Elsa. Yes. So the whole thing is staged and set up. First, it's almost like a trial as they go up, laid out, I mean, a trial for Gil and Stephen and for the younger people, a different kind of trial, of course. But the question at the beginning, of course, is the temptation, because clearly Gil and the young boy want to rob the thing. And yet they know, and Gil still respects Stephen Judd and respects the virtues that he believes in, he just doesn't think they have any authority anymore, really. He just thinks that nobody believes them anymore. But when Joshua Newton gives a blessing at the table, you read that blessing carefully, just look at the script. I think everything in the way in which it plays out after can be understood in terms of these verses that they use. Here's the prayer itself. He says, Heavenly Father, we thank thee for the food on this table. Teach thy children to be grateful for thy goodness, to walk in thy path, that they may not suffer thy wrath and thy vengeance. Bless us, O Lord, and these our guests, and forgive them the mercenary desires which brought them here. Now, Gill, again, says, thank you for entering a plea on our behalf, but what's the mercenary desires? And, of course, he says, you're on the way to Corsco. Well, yeah. And he says, well, them that travel there do so for one reason only, to traffic in gold which to possess is to live in fear, to desire to live in sorrow. Judd then says, but we're not trafficking, sir, merely transporting. And Newton says, it says in the book, gold is a stumbling block to them that sacrifice to it, and every fool should be taken therewith. Now Judd responds not with a biblical verse, but with a thing about character. He says, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. Loving favor rather than silver or gold, Proverbs. And finally, Newton ends it with, Into the land of trouble and anguish come the old lions, and they shall carry their riches on the shoulders of young asses to people that shall not profit them. Now, that's a perfect illustration of what these guys are doing and what the past does to the present in a certain way. The old lions, they do carry their riches on the shoulders of young asses. 
And of course, then Elsa chimes in, according to my father, every place outside this farm is a place of sin. And of course, Gil has the last verse, and he says, you cook a lovely ham hock, appetite, chapter one. <laughs> so that gets us back. Now, that's a tremendously good script right there about what this whole movie is about. Yeah, uh, it's a and, very and, good use of biblical quotes uh, for tragic right. irony to underlie the right. relationship between providence and the plot. But the only people that would have really true, known about those verses and understood their importance are Sam Peckinpah and R.G. Armstrong. They grew up with that. That's what they were taught. That's what they heard in the churches. They read the Bibles to them or just the way people read literature or textbooks in college or whatever passes for the knowledge that they have. But anyway, I think, you know, when they proceed up the mountain and Gil becomes really like the serpent in the garden. I mean, he's just trying to find what it is that would persuade Stephen to take the money. Stephen Judd, we saw right at the beginning that he's on hard times. Remember in the clerk's office there, he has to pull his shirt back a little. It's all frayed at the edges. It turns out he has boots with holes in them. Yes. And even that dialogue where Peckinpah, you know, makes Judd make fun of these things, they're not a sign of poverty. There's some kind of explanation for his poverty and blames the shoemaker for not understanding the usefulness of a hole in the bottom. <laughs> Gil says, I remember Juan, the bootmaker, he always felt the boot should cover the foot. And Stephen says, that's short-sighted. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it when it came out. And I swear, when I saw that movie on the big screen in 1962, I remember when Peck and Paw, when that line is uttered, I want to enter by House Justified, in the very first copy that I saw, it was, as I remembered, I want to enter my father's house justified. And that was removed. Either it was removed or it wasn't there, and I misunderstood it. But I read later somewhere, and I can't remember even where I read it, that originally that was what was in the script. I mean, it doesn't matter ultimately, but it is telling, both from the point of view of Peckinpah in terms of his family, but more importantly, in terms of a way a Christian would think of the house he's going to, his father's house. is not his actual father, but the father in heaven. But anyway, that dialogue between Westrom and Judd, before they get to the point where it becomes clear to Westrom that Judd is not going to turn, is a very important one, too. That reveals, in some ways, the great difficulty that Peckinpah has, and everybody has, I mean, all human societies have, in how to keep the things that were moral in an earlier generation, how do you make them live in the present? What sustains, and particularly, how do you do it once people have lost sight of what principles are that transcend circumstantial or societal norms? Once historicism, in other words, imposes itself as an intellectual orientation, then it becomes very difficult to defend things that are transhistorical. So remember that they're talking about the past. Clearly, Gill tries to get him to say, you know, you had that woman that you loved and she loved you and you couldn't marry her because of the dangers of your job and your poverty, etc., etc., Finally, you know, they get down to a kind of a moral discussion. And Judd said to him, would it surprise you to know that I was once a lawbreaker? And Westrom said, well, bless my stars. 
Judd says, about the age of that boy back there, skinny as a snake and just about as mean, ran around with a hole-in-the-wall bunch, gun-happy, looking for trouble, or a pretty ankle, had the world by the tail, so to speak. Then one night, Paul Staniford picked me up. He was sheriff of Madera County then. There'd been a fight, and I was drunk, sicker than a damn dog. Well, sir, he dried me out in jail. Then we went out back, and he proceeded to kick the bitter hell right out of me. And Gill says, that took some doing. Stephen says, not much. You see, he was right and I was wrong. That makes a difference. Gill asks an, an interesting question. Who says so? And Stephen says, nobody. That's something you just know. And when I was able to walk again, I realized I learned a lesson, the value of self-respect. Now, you notice it was something you just know. In a way, how do you just know something? Is it conscience, the way Rousseau thought <laughs> Or is it, though you have to be taught, you have to learn what it is and come to understand the meaning of what it is that is still defensible. Now, Gill takes that and says, well, what's that worth on the open mark? And Judge says, nothing to some people, but a great deal to me. I lost those last years. The only work I was able to get was in places like Kate's back there, bartender, stick man, bouncer, etc., etc., now I'm getting back a little respect for myself. I intend to keep it with the help of you and that boy. And that's when Gil says to him, partner, you know what's on the back of a poor man when he dies, the clothes of pride. And they're not a bit warmer to him than they were when he was alive. Is that all you want, Steve? And Judd, of course, then utters that famous line, all I want is to enter my house justified. And I think that's the moral dilemma in a certain way. How do you make people know what is right and wrong when they don't know, as Gill says? Who says so? What happens to morality when everything is relative to its own time and everything is made true or false, right or wrong, according to the conventional standards of the time? In a way, this is like asking a more philosophic question. What happens in the absence of an understanding of philosophy or natural right when you talk about justice? It's not possible to talk about justice in the way in which it had been over these thousands of years by this time. When you then get up to coarse gold and, you know, you have then the dilemma of the young girl. And by the way, Marietta Hartley was an interesting choice for Peck and Paw to pick for that role. Do you know who Marietta Hartley's grandfather was? John B. Watts, the founder of behavioral psychology. And her mother was raised by Watson's method, which was never to kiss your children or to hold them. And her mother was a wreck psychologically. Marriott Hartley's father killed himself that year, 1962. And I read once an interview with her. When Peck and Paul interviewed her, he absolutely brutalized her psychologically. He knew she was married to a guy that was beating her, and he basically wanted to see if she could take what he thought was the kind of psychological punishment that would be necessary for this role. And she passed, in his view, with flying cops. I think she was perfect for that role. I mean, she had just the proper kind of innocence, vulnerability, and a certain kind of spiritedness as well. What a tragedy. I did not know her story. Yeah, no, and she subsequently, nobody knew about this personally until she wrote her autobiography in the 1990s. And she opened up about her father having, and she started this thing to try to help people. But her whole life was, she said she went into the movies to try to find people to hold her, you know, to like her, to grow up that way. 
and her grandfather, I mean, was a pretty powerful personality in terms of her mother. Peckinpah was like Ford. He had a way of seeing the kind of character that he wanted and what they could bring to a role. I mean, yep. with R.G. Armstrong, I mean, that guy here, when you see him in, he's in Major Dundee, I think, you see him in Pat Garrett, and you see him in a lot of westerns in, in that period. He's really good, too. Turns out he had a master's in English from the University of North Carolina, and then he went into acting. He was a stage actor. Actually, R.G. Armstrong was on stage in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. before There's he went production. Yeah. I think one of the great scenes, too, in this movie, as you move forward, is the wedding scene. I mean, it's almost like a kind of Dante's Inferno, the character of that whole wedding, the way it's laid out. But then you get the commentary of Edgar Buchanan on the meaning of marriage, which is really very interesting given the circumstances. It's just a very beautiful way of putting what a good wedding is. Uh, Yeah, so it's... It's one of the... I don't know how you would change it in a way to make it better. You know, the title of it originally, which Peckinpah changed, was Guns in the Afternoon, which I guess remained the title when it came out in Britain. I mean, both of those titles are okay, but I think Ride the High Country is still probably the best Mm -hmm. one you could pick for it. It was a sad thing that MGM just, I mean, the executives at MGM, when that movie came out and they put it on a second bill with movies that were so inferior, even the reviewers were saying, this is the better movie. And they said, well, it can't be that good. It didn't cost that much money. It was and, only when they realized that people were just coming in to see the Peck and Paw film yeah, and right, stay right, for right. the main feature that they And then when it, it when and, it took off in Europe, I mean, when this movie beats out Fellini's Eight and a Half for the Belgian prize and it starts winning prizes like that, he had the tendency to do what Ford did, is to not overshoot. And one of the MGM executives basically berated him because he had not given enough film. He said, who do you think you are, John Ford? (laughs) Exactly. Don't shoot more than you need for scenes, and then they can't do hatchet jobs on your movie. Because they only have the stuff needed to assemble the cut you have in mind. But of course, as a director, you have to edit for yourself in advance of shooting. Think it out. Yeah. What are you going to need? Because if you don't have enough coverage, the scenes don't work anymore. Yeah, so yeah. it was quite risky, but he was talented and hardworking. And like Ford, as you mentioned, he had his own character actors uh-huh. that he kept using, which again, oh, yeah. helps very much if you're developing the craft. And so for all his self-destructiveness, he was very, very good at what he did, Peckinpah was. Oh, yeah, I, he, I think so. You're right, of course, about the wedding. It is typical of Peckinpah to put the holiest thing in the midst of the worst savagery. (laughs) Both because he likes the contrast and the antithesis. In a sense, it's a mirror of the scene with Stephen Judd's arrival in town. There's Again, it's about honor dishonored and how you welcome somebody coming in who is important, who has some kind of claim to nobility. One of the things that even persisted up to my own time when I was young that was really big in the early part of the 20th century were these carnivals would come into town, into small towns, and they would have sideshows with freaks. Yeah, I mean, real human freaks. And you could see when Peckinpah shows these kinds of carnival-like things, it's an attempt really to undermine the sense of the sacred. 
it really plays to the unnatural and the worst instincts and all of the vices. I mean, like the vice that Gill had to indulge in, which was dishonesty, you know, and giving prizes that because these people couldn't hit something. And of course, he's using buckshot. But all of that, I think, in the wedding is the yep. most... In a bar and brothel. And what is far more profitable than the gold coming out of that place is the whorehouse, it <laughs> looks like. Because it turns out that is whatever amount of money that they thought that they were originally going to have to take down, it didn't turn out to be a great deal of money, far That's less. Right. And, and then the deceit they had to use, and you notice who engineered the deceit that was necessary to save Ilsa was Gil. Yep. Gil had the cunning. He had, you might say, the kind of ability to adapt to circumstances. Yeah, he is in certain ways too good to survive, whereas uh, yeah. Randolph Scott plays a far cannier man. Not yeah, strong yeah. morally, but stronger yeah. intellectually, and they complement each other as moral and intellectual virtue. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Joel McRae plays a, a straight shooter, but one who can't explain exactly what he believes or why and is not given to speechifying. Randall yeah. Scott plays a speechifier who yeah. has not enough steadiness. Well, you can see that... easily corrupted by society, right. both by opportunity and by dishonor. Both are needed to corrupt him. But and, you notice that Judd does this, have a reason why he w wants to uphold the old morality. And that's self-respect. Yeah. You'll notice that that's harder for guilt to have. Yep, because exactly. he's compromised himself in many ways. And so here's the problem. How so, do you sustain morality, a morality that is for the good of the people? I mean, religion is one way, but what Peckinpah shows is religion is losing its power. The law is losing its power. Yep. Who's the law in the hands of by the time he makes the wild bunch? The moneymen, the oligarchs, the railroads. Yeah, the railroads. And you can see Westrom Gill, he's a man that the appetites are important to him. Whether it's in the very beginning, you know, the, what's most interesting about the meal is not the sermonizing. It's the food. It's what she made. And when it gets to the lives that they live, what's important? How many bullets did you take and how much money would you have to be compensated for for the amount of pain that you went through? All bodily and physical and material things that are important in human life, but how do you transcend those in a way that makes you enter your house justified? Yeah, Randall Scott plays a guy who's too much of a materialist and who despises himself at some level because he knows he has consented to his own corruption. Mm -hmm. He faced the same kind of dishonor as Joel McRae. They were both rejected as obsolete. Gunmen yeah, are no yeah. longer necessary. But McRae didn't consent to being degraded in this way and to turning from Marshall into a criminal, whereas Randolph Scott did because he, at some level he agreed with the principle of a commercial society, which is advantage. And, of course, you would need both moral virtues yeah. and intellectual virtues, but it's far more interesting dramatically if they are separated into two different characters who face the same question of self-respect from two very different sides. Randall Scott plays a guy who's not only canny, but he's effective. It's only yeah, in the face yeah. of Joel McRae that he loses. Whereas the other guy, Joel McRae, is not effective and he's not enough of a judge of character or of circumstance. But he has an iron will which sees him through 
and of course he ends up being a guide for Randolph Scott because they're both old men and they have to ask themselves how will they die yeah. what makes for a noble death yeah. as we were talking yeah. about in the wild bunch that is all that's left to ask what makes for a noble death yeah. but unlike in the wild bunch where the solution of the plot is political perhaps there will be a new birth of freedom in Mexico in Ride the High Country the solution of the plot is private and personal these two old men, by their sacrifices, educate and save a young man and a young woman who will be married and who might be decent after all. And you can see from this point of view what's wrong with all the communities they go through in terms of freedom and rights. In the city, freedom is understood as freedom from danger or freedom from want, freedom for advantage and for leisure, and there's no dignity there. The only two noble men in town are treated worse than anybody else. <laughs> I think, and people you know, are betting men and at the same time sore losers. Mm-hmm. Now, but you know, both... on the other hand, in the camp, as you pointed out, the most sacred thing is said there, the wedding ritual, but at the same yeah. time it is violated or attempted to violate in the most horrifying way. There people think of freedom as primarily freedom from law, freedom from restraint, and their rights as having a good time, having what they want, enslaving themselves to their appetites with, uh, of course, uh, appetites ruling the city as well, but there are moral and political restraints there which you do not see in the camp. And as you so well pointed out, this is a barbarism that has been learned. These are all the descendants of more civilized people. And that, of course, as you suggested, is a comment on the emergence of relativism and the strange individualistic kind of freedom that's quite scary now and then. Everybody's greedy, but what if you were to live by it? Well, it could get really, really weird. But then, of course, there is the Knudsen farm. And there you see that, on one hand, the pater familias has got his head screwed on straight because he knows that the law has to be sacred. But on the other hand, he has forgotten the command, be fruitful and multiply. By his religious view, there would be no next generation. And that's the problem there. And the two noble men have to navigate between all these partial understandings and therefore partial errors in their own partial way as embodiments of moral and intellectual virtue. But you know, the necessity of both Stephen and Gill, the necessity that Gill reveals that exists for all human beings is how do you adapt to the society, the circumstances that you find yourself living in. Most people don't live through times that are so drastically transformed, whereby that one way of life is replaced by another way of life. But in time, this transformation becomes almost invisible. But when Knudsen quotes from that biblical verse, into the land of trouble and anguish come the old lions, and they shall carry their riches on the shoulders of young asses to a people that shall not profit them. That is a dilemma, a human dilemma. And the problem with the necessity of somebody like Gill, who can adapt just to survive, it becomes, let's say, practically necessary to have somebody like Gill to go along with. (laughs) even a good guy like Stephen Judd. They would not have succeeded had it not been for Gil to get that girl out and to be able to do what they did. But on the other hand, the question remains, the question that she asks of Judd, my father says there's only right and wrong, good and evil, nothing in between. It isn't that simple, is it? 
And, of course, Judd says by then he's learned. No, it isn't. But he still insists it should be. And that's what Peckinpah, if R.G. Armstrong is right, insisted all the way through his life. He never gave up on believing that that's the way it should be. But it isn't. So it human dignity is a strange construct made of two very different things. One of them is the knowledge required to live, to survive, to adapt, as you say. On the mm -hmm. other hand, there's the knowledge of human dignity, without which there's no real reason to survive. <laughs> right. And they don't often come together. And Peckinpah was unusually acute in his awareness of mm -hmm. how in America human dignity is endangered by the separation of yeah. the kind of knowledge required yeah. to be effective, to have power, the arts and sciences, broadly speaking. Yeah. And on the other hand, the kind of knowledge that stems from religion, which is yeah. what makes human beings human. They all have one heavenly father. And the so problem. these two are coming apart, and Peckinpah's but, movies are uniquely focused on mm -hmm. this phenomenon. But you know, the problem becomes when you do lose the ground of morality because you can't teach it anymore, which is really what Stephen Judd is admitting, you, that you should just know it. What happens when you don't just know it? And what happens, it's not that right and wrong and good and evil disappear. They just take on a new shape. I mean, when good and evil in the wild bunch is understood in terms of the railroad versus the robber, who is morally right? When the Robert Ryan character says, how does it feel to be so righteous and having the law on your side? He said, it feels good. But the point is, everybody knows that the power that is established in the law is not the same as morality. Yeah. And yet, when it does get translated as right and wrong, lawful, unlawful, that establishes a ground of morality. And then you're going to get an intellectual defense of that as well, which is what you got in the post-historicist era. You got it in the form of the way history comes to be understood in each epoch and the way in which it becomes increasingly the ability to even uphold the greatness of the Western tradition itself that was established over millennia become impossible to sustain. And so history then even your past has turned against the old lines of what they had are so far removed, but those are the devils, those people that created that past. The problem of a society that's a civilized society is not different than the problems of civilization when it comes to the virtues of what it means to establish a regime and a polis and all that. Now, the regimes may differ in terms of the way they establish what is important, but there has to be a way of distinguishing between the law that is based on convention and some kind of knowledge that is understood either from the point of view of religion, a supernatural kind of authority, or a natural kind of authority. Now, Gill's questioning of Stephen Judd there about how do you know what is right, he's probing for a philosophic answer, but he doesn't have one. That requires a philosophic defense, yeah. an answer to that question. So the West has even squandered that. Yeah, this is, I think, a perfect conclusion for our conversation that we need to learn from both uh, Randall Scott and Joel McRae in Ride the High Country. You do yeah. need, with Randall Scott, an intellectual investigation, but you also need, with Joel McRae, yeah. to insist that it should be as simple as mm -hmm. good and evil, right and wrong, or that is to say, that's what orients our actions. Well, do you notice how it ends exactly in the way it started at that table? It's between the old versus the young, because at the end, they decide when Westrom asks him, says, what do you think? Judd says, let's meet him head on, halfway, just like always. 
Gil yep. says, my sentiments exactly. You Hammonds, what do you want, old man? He wants a shovel and six feet of dirt, Henry says. Judd replies, you redneck peckerwoods, you too chicken gutted to finish this thing out in the open. Two old men against three of you boys. And if them odds ain't good enough for you damn dry gulch and southern trash, we'll send out the girl. We're coming. You hear me, Henry? Yeah, I hear you. Well, we'll catch them when they raise up. When one of the Hammonds says, ain't you got no sense of family on it? The ending, as I said before, is a perfect ending from the point of view of what these themes all try to reveal. Because in the end, Judd says, those boys just made me a lot of money. They shot him a lot of bullets in one spot. Gil says, don't worry about anything. I'll take care of it, just like you would have. Judd says, hell, I know that. I always did. You just forgot for a while. That's all. So long, partner. And he doesn't want the young people to watch him die. And then when you turn, the way that shot unfolds, he looks up and you see the Sierra Nevada, you see the high country. So in a sense there, the high and the low are still possible to be revealed. In the Wild Bunch, there's no high. <laughs> well, sir, we have come to the end of, this is our sixth conversation on the Great Westerns, both Ford and Peckinpah, and we will have to do this again sometime soon. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. All right, it's good talking to you. All the best, sir. Thanks a lot. Okay. All right. We'll see you. Bye.